In what we're doing now, we're getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply, what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast organic. Welcome back to the program, folks. This is Meditations and Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele, and you are listening to the Progressive Radio Network, where you can find me every Monday at 2 p.m. East Coast time. Well, as always, there's a million and a half things to talk about, but primarily today, we're going to focus on the police and the military. And I know, here, in this country... Those two entities in the United States of America are two of the most highly respected and admired institutions and professions in the entire nation. Now, I'm assuming it's been like this for some time, though I haven't looked at the polling data throughout the decades. What I've noticed is that over the last, say, 10 to 15 years, those entities, police officers and veterans, military personnel, are largely considered the most admirable positions in modern American society that one can hold. Now, this is interesting for many reasons. It's also troubling for many reasons. And I think that we should explore these reasons because as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, indeed as we've seen at least in the mainstream press, since August of 2014 when Michael Brown was shot by Officer Darren Wilson in Ferguson. There's a major divide in this country. Not that there aren't many major divides, not there are, that there aren't divides within divides. That's just to say that every time a police officer kills an innocent black person, more often than not, an unarmed young black male, white America loses its mind. I mean, that's simple. I mean, I can see that. I have to back up. And let me just be clear for people. Again, I say this for those of you who are listening who don't know, as a veteran, as a combat veteran, served in Iraq and all that other jazz. I mean, and see, this is funny, too, because to me, it's absurd to have to say this because it means utterly nothing to me. It means nothing. Does it lend me some credibility in the mainstream discourse about these issues? Yeah, it does. So, therefore, I, I use it um, because then I can tell people to go F themselves if they tell me that I'm a traitor or I'm not a patriot or whatever, because then, you know, I can just sort of throw their ideology back in their face. <laughs> and so you didn't realize, I'm sorry, I didn't tell you this from the beginning, but yeah, that's right. I'm a veteran and I was in the Marine Corps, which makes it even better because then people can't tell you, oh, you know, you're just in the Air Force or you, you were just in the Coast Guard or whatever. No, it's, I was in the Marines and I was in the infantry and I went to Iraq and I've gotten praise from my com my former soldiers and veterans for uh, things that I had did in Iraq 
things that I'm not necessarily proud of, but things that the average American or people within the military think is really cool or proud or honorable, you know, like killing people. So I say that as I say that everything that I say from here on out, you know, for those who are listening who don't know, I say this as a veteran. I say this as someone who comes from a family of sort of blue collar working class people who are all veterans. And I say this as someone whose brother and whose other family members, friends of the family and so on, is a, are police officers. It's, and it's interesting. So today, earlier today, I was outside admiring the patio that my neighbor and I had just built to extend my concrete patio. We built it with uh, some bricks that were taken from the local or given to us. Not taken, I shouldn't say, <laughs> given to us from the local coffee shop. And I was checking out some of this polymeric sand that we put in between the cracks to help seal it. And sure enough, my one of my neighbors comes from down the street. And he says, where's your Bernie sign? Because I had a Bernie Sanders sign out in front. I know there's people out there who are going to make fun of me for that. And there's people out there who are very happy to hear that. <laughs> but... uh Either way, you know, yeah, so I had a birdie sign. Once again, to me, not a big deal, you know. It was about much more than him, and we don't even have to get into that because it will throw us off topic today. The point is, is, you know, this gentleman comes walking up, and uh, I won't mention his name, but I talk to him, uh, I'd say occasionally. And he says, oh, where's your Bernie signs? I told him, come on, you know, that, you know, he's not in the race anymore and et cetera. And he said, so who are you going to go for now? You got to go for Trump. And it started this, I mean, wide-ranging hour debate. I mean, I wouldn't say much of it was a conversation because he he would say something completely insane, like Obama wants to bring a million Syrian refugees in the country. And then, you, and then I would have to respond. And in that response, what do you have to say? You have to explain to people, okay, number one, I would love an, a million Syrian refugees to come into the country. Okay, so anyone who's arguing differently, I'm not saying that they're racist. There's people who have genuine concerns about jobs and so on. But the, first you have to explain that to people, to these sort of white right-wing reactionaries. And there are plenty of them. This is something else that people have to remember. There's this idea, I think, among progressives or progressive political movements, liberals and leftists and so on, that – once the baby boomer generation dies, everything's just going to be hunky-dory. First of all, I don't buy into that. Second of all, I can understand how some people do. Um, but I think more importantly, what we need to recognize is that there are sort of generations of people who hold these ideologies and these views. And even more importantly, these ideologies and views are codified in laws and institutions. So they're systemically implemented. So we can change as many individual minds as you want if we don't have the power to actually change, dismantle, significantly reform, uh, what, however you want to put this, major the major institutions of our time, whether they be media institutions, economic institutions, cultural institutions, uh, the military, police forces, etc. If we don't change those institutions, it doesn't matter whether those institutions – that might matter. Let me back up. There might be – Minor differences, and some of those minor differences might make might actually make a big difference in individuals' lives. So, for instance, 
it may be better to have, say, a Democrat in office because that Democrat would be more likely to sign legislation or to veto legisla- sign legislation that would, say, extend unemployment benefits and or veto legislation that would significantly cut them. To me, is that the biggest issue in the world right now? No. To someone living off of unemployment benefits, is it a big deal for them to get those benefits extended for X amount of weeks? Yes, it's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of maybe having to do some kind of a criminal activity that would then get you thrown in jail, so on and so forth. So minor differences sometimes do make a big difference. But to get to the to the core of what I'm saying about talking with this individual you and talking to people about the police or the military is you really have to go back and – or I've found myself, I've had to really go back and try and explain the essence and the fundamentals and the history of these institutions. To me, there's simply no other way. You know, so I have this guy telling me, well, you know, um, this about Mexicans and he's, you know, Trump's going to build the wall and what's wrong. I mean, we went from that to him saying, well, you know, that's how capitalism works and me telling him, well, I don't, I'm not, I'm not a capitalist. You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't think that this is the best system or the only system. And in fact, I think it's a bad system that not only exploits people, but that is completely incompatible with a living environment and a vibrant natural world. Of course, he thinks I'm nuts and I think he's nuts. Uh, you know, but he's he's at least honest. You know, here's what's interesting. So towards the middle of the conversation or the debate, he says to me, well, you know, because I said something about like, you know, by 2050, the demographics are going to significantly shift in this country and God knows where the environment will be. And, he, you know, he just stopped me and he said, I don't care. He's like, I'm 72 years old. You know, I don't care about 2050. He's like, I just want to protect what I have for now. This was very interesting. Okay, because this is the honest truth. And it, it highlights how different people can see the world in such a different fashion. So, of course, white people in the United States, well, let's back up. Of course, significant portions of white people in the United States consider the police to be a force for security and stability. And, of course... Significant portions of Americans, and this cuts across racial and ethnic and gender lines, significant portions of Americans believe the same to be true about the U.S. military. So to me, when I see the debate about policing, to me it seems no different than the debate about the military. Both institutions have been around for a long time. Modern policing, of course, getting its finding its inception in the context of slavery and slave patrols. However, the concept of security and or the military or police security forces operating in the same manner as police forces today operate is in very old concept predating the uh, feudal era, and so on. So, I mean, predating uh, even the Middle Ages. We're talking about all the way back in ancient Greece, security apparatuses, um, military systems. Now, of course, they weren't referred to as police and have the technologies as our modern police. 
and in some ways, obviously, and use the same tactics. But the point being that these are two institutions, including the military, of course, as people know from the very beginning of Western civilization, there's been militaries everywhere and always. And militarism, of course, throughout the time has presented itself as one of the major threats to society and still does today. So for Americans who have no, absolutely no concept of what it means to be occupied, what it means to be bombed, or to have a democratically elected government overthrown, I mean, the average American cannot begin to fathom. They can't, they can't, they can't even scratch the surface of beginning to fathom. They can't, you know, you can't even open the front gate on the way to the house to not to being unable to open the front door to even think about or fathom what it would be like to have a foreign occupying force patrolling the streets of America, drone striking innocent families, torturing and killing innocent people, kicking in people's doors, occupying their homes, taking their belongings at will. And for over a decade and a half. The average American simply cannot imagine what that's like. And because they can't imagine what this is like, it's much more inclined to allow government officials and fear, of course, always operating under the politics of fear, which we have to remember both those, both the military and the police operate within a context of fear without fear why would people need police now some would argue there's very practical reasons vince my god society would be an anarchy why would society be an anarchy is it is the primary antagonism the police so without the police what people's people would just automatically lose their minds we don't think that people – see, this is the problem. This is where we have to talk about ideology. This is where we have to talk about philosophy because the modern left doesn't talk about these things. So, why, so the modern leftist or the modern liberal or the modern progressive is sort of left sitting there going, well, you know, geez, without the police, I mean, well, I'm, I'm, you know, they would – saying, well, look, you know, we want – we." We would like to reform police forces and so on, you know, but we have to at the, at the end of the day, we have to have police officers. Well, at the end of the day, I think you until you get rid of, say, patriarchy, then you're probably going to need police. Why? Well, according to the statistics, the vast majority of calls that police officers respond to are actually domestic disturbance calls, at least on the domestic front. So when they actually go to someone's home. Did people know that? I wonder if the I wonder if those of you who who have been following this issue understand that. Now, would it, so would that mean that if we got rid of police tomorrow, police forces, which you couldn't do, okay, so it wouldn't happen overnight like that. But you know, if we were working, if we let's put it this way, if we had a movement or movements in this country that were powerful enough to pressure the government and or have the power within the government to change the laws, to abolish, say, 
modern police forces and replace them with either community police forces or whatever that structure or institution or series of institutions would look like, does that automatically mean that husbands and men wouldn't beat their wives and girlfriends and partners? No, it doesn't. It means we have to do these things simultaneously. You know, so we can't talk about getting rid of police. So, okay, let's back up to the to the white person or to, to um, a significant portion of white people, as the polls show in this country. Although it does change, and this is something people should keep in mind, it does change depending on your income status. So class makes a big difference. If you are a poor white person, you the you know you still they still over poor white people still overwhelmingly compared to poor black people support and defend modern police forces. That again, the polls show this, and my anecdotal experiences uh, are the same. But there is a difference between how poor white people view police and how say middle class or upper middle class and or rich white people view the police. It's a major difference. Major difference. And there's all kinds of contradictions wrapped up in this. I mean, think about the fact that the right wing has been pushing this anti-government sentiment, anti-state rhetoric for decades. And now... There are actually right-wing reactionary militia groups that have been formed in this country, been here for a while, but have exploded in membership under Obama. Of course, that must be a coincidence. has to do with his race, no doubt. Exploded under Obama and have found their home in sort of the political campaign of Donald Trump, which is actually what makes Donald Trump so uh, dangerous. It's not, to me... Donald Trump as a symbol or as a figure or even as someone who could potentially make decisions within the White House, it's that he gives a voice on the highest of levels, gives a voice to and legitimizes some of the most racist, reactionary, and insane elements in American society, particularly white America. You know, for people who grew up in the suburbs of Buffalo, New York, for people who grew up outside of Oakland, for people who grew up in the suburbs of Chicago or Milwaukee or Detroit or Cleveland or St. Louis or Louisville or Indianapolis or Cincinnati, Donald Trump's rise to power is not surprising, nor is the reaction of white America to Donald Trump and the reaction of white Americans to what's happening currently between primarily the police and disproportionately African Americans and black people. And of course, disproportionately Latinos and disproportionately indigenous Americans, something that we haven't really talked about too much, not only on this program, but I think we've done a bad job. We've done a poor job, in my opinion, of linking police violence to class. Now we know that there's the, here I'm explaining some of these um, the ways that these issues overlap or the intersections, as some would call them. You know, so yeah, so if you're a poor white person, your view of the police is different than, say, a wealthy white person. If you are a poor black person, your view is different 
than if you are a wealthy black person, though wealthy black people are more critical of police than wealthy white people. And now the same numbers in comparison to white people, um, the same opinions, very similar opinions, are held within Latino communities and indigenous communities. So what am I saying here? Essentially, what I think people need to work on, or what they, I, I think what we need to ask ourselves, there are a few questions here. People who organize on the left, people who are thinking about these issues from a leftist perspective, a progressive perspective. We have to go, we have to critique these institutions to their core. We have to fundamentally critique them. We have to, we have to dispel the myth that the police and the military provide security and stability. And in fact, argued the opposite, that police forces and the U.S. military is the source of insecurity and instability. And we have plenty of evidence and, you know, to prove this. I mean, Chicago is a great example of this. Here's a militarized police force within the context of an utterly corrupt city government and a state government that many would argue are possibly the most corrupt state in the union, at least Illinois, in the running with Louisiana. Chicago, undoubtedly, in my opinion, would be the most corrupt city. And there's, there's sort of plenty of data to prove that as well. I mean, you've got three of the last five governors are, have done jail time, city officials that have been arrested, police officials that have been arrested for torturing young black people, primarily, again. So we have to get to the core of what these institutions represent and who they protect. We have to remember that the police are primarily here to protect property. That's what they're here to do. I mean, it might sound, see in the, I guess the challenge for us is to make that not sound like some crazy shit that people hear from sectarian groups because that stuff can turn people off too. I mean, when people have sort of prepackaged, really easy answers for people, it, it's frustrating. It's not only frustrating, but I think people pay less attention. You know, so if you go, so for instance, if you, someone says, well, you know, I think that we need police for security and blah, blah, blah. And someone says to them, well, the police are simply here to protect property. And, you know, haven't you read Marx? You know, it's like, no, like that's not what people need to hear. You know, people I think have, do have legitimate concerns. I mean, I wrote an article about this last year and some people didn't really like it. They're just, you know, it was kind of like they expected me to just toe the line of well, let's abolish the police. Well, I think we should, as I mentioned earlier. But you can't do that right now. Not not because of the reasons the right wing says, because, oh, society would fall into anarchy and so on. No, because we don't have the proper conditions to be able to do something like that. We have not stamped out patriarchy or racism or any of these other things that, you know, many – Groups, including, you know, let's be honest, primarily men, at least with regard to women, and say white supremacist groups and militias and white racist groups, I think those groups would be the groups that would start problems without the police. And not to mention many uh, police officers are members of those groups. Another great contradiction here. Because the police are being killed by all kinds of assault rifles and so on that many police officers argue citizens should have. <laughs> so put that together. You know, the police want us to feel bad for them because they're being shot by uh, assault rifles. Assault rifles that many police 
members of police force are all oh, second amendment, brother, constitutional rights, brother. You know, we're just, we're going to keep fighting on, you know, it's all about the constitution and, you know, it's American freedom and blah, blah, blah. Well, there you go. You get a taste of your American freedom. You want everybody walking around with AK-47s and AK-74s and AR-15s and SIGs and whatever the hell else? Well, there you go. This is going to happen. So, I mean, I don't expect any crocodile tears from me because uh, it wouldn't be genuine if I did. I mean, I didn't feel anything when I heard the news about police officers getting shot. I felt absolutely nothing. The only thing I felt wasn't with regard to the police officers. It was... This is this isn't good for the future. Why? Because these racial tensions, these divisions, this systemic white supremacy and racism and all the rest. Prison industrial complex, the militarization of the police, it continues to get worse. So that's a question for the movement. You know, question for the movement is how after two years, two and a half years of a significant, I would argue. No, I'm sorry, about two years. But two years of a significantly um, visible movement in Black Lives Matter, and this isn't a, this isn't to bash anyone. This is just like questions I think we have to ask ourselves as you know activists, organizers, protesters, writers, thinkers, commentators, human beings. How can we be more effective? Why is it after almost two years of nonstop protests and movement building? Are the police more as violent as they've ever been, if not more so? Why is it that these police are constantly let off the hook? Why are none of them being charged? I would argue that we're not doing as good of a job as we could as a movement. I would argue that the movement's fractured. I would argue that the movement is almost as fractured and as segregated as regular society. And that has to change, my friends. I mean, if we want to be successful... At times, under certain issues and under certain circumstances, we're going to have to just close ranks and fight with each other and stand with each other. That doesn't mean that we should be uncritical. That doesn't mean that we have to listen to things we don't think are right or to go along with people that we think are wrong. That doesn't mean any of that. That just simply means that I think we need more horizontal cooperation between movements, between communities, and less distrust of each other. Because there's a lot of distrust out there. Tons of it. Tons of it. And within the movement. I mean, I hear it all the time speaking with people from around the world. It's not just in the United States. Here I'm talking about the United States. And also, you know, a question for the left is, what do you want to do with the police? How do you simultaneously deal with Things like patriarchy, like the fact that the majority of domestic phone calls made to police officers are made because of domestic violence situations in which the vast majority of cases, of course, are men beating on their wives or girlfriends or partners. Something I think is quasi useful that the police do, but then they can also turn that situation very violent. So if you have someone for out of town who shows up because, say, a woman is being beaten by her partner, who's a man and who calls the police or, you know, say someone, the, the woman calls the police, but then the police come and say the police automatically use lethal force or say they shoot the guy with a stun gun or say they shoot the wrong person or say they even pull a gun and they shoot somebody. Or let's say they arrest someone who has prior warrants and then that person's life is ruined. And I, you know, I have no sympathy for people who are beating on 
women. So, I mean, they can go to hell for all I care. But the reality is it doesn't help anyone in society if we throw that person into the current criminal justice system or criminal injustice system, as some call it, because that system is totally screwed and totally oppressive and inherently unjust and so on. So that makes no sense. So that would mean that not only would we need to get rid of the police, at least in their current form and as such, but we would also have to get rid of the legal system, at least the current legal system and the way it's structured. Maybe we keep some of it. Maybe we keep the laws that people think are legitimate and we make new ones. Same as the Constitution. I mean, this to me is where it's at, people. I mean, I have no interest. I mean, most of the conversations that I hear or see about activism, to be honest with you, are utterly boring to me. I mean, they're completely boring. I mean, it's like watching the freaking paint dry sometimes when you hear these debates. It was like people – I'll lay off of this, but I just – this is as an aside. It was sort of like the Bernie campaign. It was like, yeah, yeah, I'm with all of this stuff. I've been with all – Everything Bernie said, I was with that when I was 19, 20 years old and starting to snap out of it in the Marine Corps. I've been with that message for, you know, 13 years now. Um, yeah, to me, no big deal. But to watch all of these people talk about these issues as though they're a big deal or to think like, my God, Bernie Sanders is talking about free education. Yeah, well, of course. What are you, goofy? There's people 100 years ago who were talking about free education. People just don't realize, especially Americans, simply do not realize how far to the right we have shifted as a society and as a movement. That's even for the left. The left has shifted to the right. The left barely has anything interesting to say anymore. Just slogans and platitudes. You know, I talked about this with um, Thomas Frank on one of the previous programs. You know, about... And even offline, you know, about these platitudes of like, well, a green economy, a green economy. Well, hey, that's okay. If we need a framework, if we need a message that will resonate with people, get the message out, you know, garner more support and so on for the movement, that's great. So we use a message like let's build a green economy. The problem is, as Thomas understands and many other, I think, radical environmentalists understand is, you know, the, you know, the economy is still taking precedent over living world, over the environment. And what is a green economy? I just read an article. I sent it to my friend Sergio about how the Earth's sand is disappearing because there's sand in everything. I don't realize. I mean, I figured glass, of course. I guess I never thought of it. I mean, again, showing you sort of how unconscious I, I can be at times about the natural environment, something I try and, you know, work on, but something that's very difficult. But there's sand in everything. So every new window, every new building that's developed every new skyscraper that's erected in abu dhabi or san francisco or london and so on it requires tons and tons of sand so all these all these places are being pillaged of their sand now it's the same thing as if we have salt now we're gonna so we're saying we don't want to use fossil fuels but we'll use as and to quote Derek jensen i think i probably quote him once every couple weeks what a great thinker when it comes to the environment. I mean, his quote about economies and exploitation, I'm trying to think. So any economy that's based on, hopefully I get this right, any economy that's based on the use 
of non-renewable energy is doomed to failure. But any economy and society that's based on the hyper-exploitation of renewable energy is also doomed. And that, I think, is true. I think that maxim remains true forever. That we can't have people think that we're going to be able to have exactly what we have right now. That we're going to have, we're going to be we could be just as wasteful, just as unmindful of the environment as we can be right now. But with green energy, that's the only difference. The conversation I'm hearing from a large part of the environmental movement is: we can have a capitalist economy, and we can have the same standard of living. And use the same, maybe a little better uh, waste methods of, of reducing waste and so on. But basically, we're going to keep the same thing, same structures, but we'll do it with green energy. That's what a big portion of the, of the environmental movement is saying. There are elements within the environmental movement who are saying things much more radical. No doubt. I'm not arguing that. What I'm arguing is that the majority are not. And I'm saying this is the same thing is true with regard to the police and the military. There are people, Bernie's campaign said again what people have been thinking for over a decade. You know, people that, and no one gives anybody enough credit. I mean, I give people tons of credit. We should, I think. I think people are extremely smart. I think you talk to the average person, you give them credit, you don't treat them like they're some asshole, and vice versa. And you're going to find that the average person actually knows that, yeah, these wars are these wars are bullshit. That, yeah, it's bullshit that the police are shooting these people. And, they're, you know, see, people are seeing it on camera now so they can see just how insane these stories are and how crazy the media tries to cover all this up. They're starting to see that stuff with their own eyes. And they're not stupid. You know, as I've talked about in previous programs, people, you give people some credit. I think we should as a movement. We shouldn't assume, oh my God, people are going to lose their minds when we talk about drastically cutting and or abolishing the military. I don't think people are going to lose their minds. I mean, we have to break through the fear. There's no doubt. We live in a culture of fear. And the politics of fear do not help. Speaking of conversations I've had with environmentalists, you know, constantly scaring the shit out of people is not a good tactic. Nor ideologically do I think is very um, commendable or useful if we want people to think rationally about the problems that we face. The more people are scared, the more people will respond in the emotional and irrational ways. Now, should people have a proper fear of what it what lies on the horizon, what we're dealing with now, what could happen, of course. I think it's probably very important for people to have some level of fear. But this politics of fear, you know, just trying to scare the living shit out of people, telling them, well, you know, if we don't do something now, the environment's going to collapse, we're all going to die. Well, I mean, the average person hears that and they say, you know, Maybe I should just drink beer and smoke pot and chill out and watch Netflix because it sounds like we're going to die anyway. Well, it's the same with the average person when it comes to ISIS in the military or the uh, inherent racism that's involved in the conversation around policing. 
police for the rich. I mean, the rich actually understand that the police are here to protect their shit. They know that they, they are very clear on this. Like my neighbor who lives down the street, I'm not going to necessarily describe exactly where I live. Cause I don't need crazy people coming to my house, but I live in a neighborhood that is well off, but I live in a building. I let's put it this way. I have a really good deal. I live by the water, by Lake Michigan. 60, I think 62% of the homes that are owned in my neighborhood are owned by people from Illinois. So this is a vacation area for people from Chicago who come down to northwest Indiana and vacation on the sand dunes and have beach homes and cottages and so on. Nonetheless, I don't want to give anyone the wrong impression here. Um, my neighbor who is wealthy, not me, but my neighbor who is wealthy, um, who probably thinks I'm wealthy and who knows, I don't, I don't even know. We haven't even gotten into that conversation, but you know, he, um, he's very clear. So we moved on. As I told you he earlier was arguing, you know, Hey, we, I vote Republican. I vote conservative because I want to protect what I have and I don't give a shit what happens to the planet by 2050. Well, he was also honest when we were talking about police because I told him my brother was a police officer and in law enforcement. And he said, really? And I said, yeah, don't, you're not going to BS me. I, I know what you guys, what police do, and it's to protect your guys' money, the rich. It's to protect you guys' stuff. The thing he kept mentioning over and over again was somebody breaking into his house. He's f- completely freaked out. He's completely freaked out because he knows that he's better off than 99% of the society, at least in terms of wealth and material status. And I don't know how he's made his money, but chances are it's probably in some very ruthless, ridiculous way. And so, of course, he probably feels bad about it deep down inside. He probably thinks to himself, oh, my God, if, you know, he's in, he, this guy's living in constant fear. He's in constant fear that at any time, legions of black people that what would make up who make up over a third of the population in Michigan city or around a third of the population in Michigan city are going to come pouring over route 12 and through the boulevard and eventually get to the beach community, which is only a half mile away, by the way. So houses that are going for sale that are selling for, I'm sorry, that are selling for anywhere from $450,000 to $2.7 million dollars. That's how much the homes go for by the beach. A half mile away. Think about this. A half mile away, south, over Route 12 and on the boulevard, houses are selling for less than $30,000. And on average, the home in, a home in Michigan City, Indiana, sells for $70,000. Whereas in the all-white or virtually all-white communities of Valparaiso and Chesterton, communities that are less than 15 miles to the to the west and south of Michigan City houses are selling on average anywhere from 160,000 to $200,000 these are the sort of racial class apartheid that we're living in i'm sorry this is and it's being presented now through the scope of police violence and now 
the two veterans who've taken it upon themselves to kill these police officers. Let's be very clear, folks. Nobody should be surprised. Nobody. If you are surprised that a couple of veterans have taken it upon themselves to lash out in extremely violent ways, and no doubt toward authority figures, and figures such as police officers that represent state power, albeit minor figures in the overall scheme. This is in no way surprising. It should have been expected. And in fact, as I argued in a recent article that I wrote for Counterpunch, people should check it out. Um, What's the title of it? Let me get to it real quick. Killer Cops, Deranged Veterans, and Pokemon Go, Welcome to America. I'm surprised more of this hasn't happened. I'm, I'm really surprised that more of this doesn't happen. I'm looking at the article. I was just going to read a segment of the article. But you know what? The point is... I don't need to read this. People can check it out. Once again, Counterpunch, check it out. Killer Cops, Deranged Veterans, and Pokemon Go, Welcome to America. I mean, there was uh, no surprise when I found out that it had been veterans. Veterans in this country are extremely pissed off. Extremely pissed off. And for good reason. You see, this is no different than Trump supporters. They have all the reason in the world. And this is where the liberals are way off base. This is why they might lose the election too. Trump supporters have every reason in the world to be pissed off. Their jobs have been shipped overseas. Their retirement benefits have been cut. Their health care costs have gone through the roof. They've seen life for their kids get harder and harder each and every year. They've seen their standard of living decline. They've seen the livelihoods that provided them and their families a decent wage, all of the things I previously mentioned. They've seen all that go away and disappear. And they're angry for maybe all the wrong reasons. Okay, so it's the same when we're talking about these veterans. Veterans are extreme. I mean, this is this is really the, the essence of the chickens coming home to roost. The United States attacked on 9-11. Why? No, we never talked about that. Because people had legitimate beefs with the United States. Am I saying that's the right way to go about it? No, of course not. But is it understandable? Of course it is. Anyone who argues otherwise is either being disingenuous or they're ideologically blinded. Of course it's understandable. But we never had that conversation. We never had an honest conversation with ourselves as a culture, as a society, as a country, why someone might want to attack the United States, not because they hate our freedom, but because we've been systematically exploiting them, killing their people, overthrowing their 
governments, meddling in their affairs, stealing their resources, killing their babies for decades. So what 9-11 represents to me, or I'm sorry, what Baton Rouge and Houston represent to me, or Dallas, I'm sorry, my goodness, what Baton Rouge and Dallas represent to me is sort of the domestic version of 9-11. And this is, a, this is a monster that has been created by the United States. So it's only fitting that someone, entities we trained and helped train, Osama bin Laden and the Sunni jihadists that we used throughout the Middle East in the 1980s and in the 1990s, then decided to turn those skills and those weapons against Uncle Sam. And how amazing is it that 15 years later, another entity, the U.S. veteran, the U.S. soldier, the U.S. Marine, who's trained to go kill and pillage for Uncle Sam's empire, because let's be honest, that's exactly what veterans do. Let's Again, let's not bullshit ourselves here. Let's be honest and talk to people because more and more people, including Trump supporters, by the way, understand that the war in Iraq was nonsense, that Libya was nonsense, that a lot of what the U.S. military does and the U.S. government does abroad actually isn't to the benefit of the majority of Americans and indeed harms people around the world. Isn't it amazing that that person, the veteran, who was also trained by Uncle Sam and used abroad, comes home and starts killing police officers? The similarities are amazing. The parallels are striking. In both cases, the chickens have come home to roost. That's what's happening. You can't train 18-year-olds for 15 years to go fight and die and kill people abroad for no good goddamn reason other than to make profits for corporations, to maximize profits for different energy companies, to exploit uh, geopolitical realities and schisms and so on. Whatever one, may, whatever one wants to argue about the root causes of the war in Iraq or the root motives for sending the United States and primarily England, Great Britain to Iraq and not expect those people to come home after 15 years of multiple deployments, no clear mission, no clear objectives, a terrible health care system when they get home, a, a bureaucratic nightmare in the Veterans Administration Hospital. And you didn't expect this to happen? And the same can be said with Osama bin Laden and Sunni jihadists and Al-Qaeda, and so on. So you think, you, what, what did the United States think? That they were just going, and this is the, well, I, you know, this is where hubris comes into play. Did the United States government not think that at some point these elements were going to come back and bite them in the ass for trying to play both sides? Oh, this is what's happening. And it's going to increase. There's no question, here's, the, here's where we get to the somber part of today's program. 
there's absolutely no question in my mind that things are going to become increasingly violent and unstable in this country. So again, like most things, I think 2016 is a is a sort of provides yet again, yet again. Any I can't remember a year that had more events happen that gave us a little glimpse into what the future is going to look like. But this year has been it, whether it be protest movements, whether it be the rise of Donald Trump and the white supremacists, whether it be the ability for the neoliberals to keep the left at bay, or whether it be, on a positive note, the surprise of Bernie Sanders being able to garner as much support as he did people identifying with a, a democratic socialist message, which ultimately is a good thing, but unable to garner the proper numbers and power to be able to actually take power. Something else that I think the left is and progressives are deathly afraid of. Do people actually want to be in power or do they just want to be a protest movement? Do you actually, and when I say power, I don't mean just do you want to get elected to, do you want to be in Congress? No, it's not, not what I'm saying. Although that is part of it. I do think wielding state power and state mechanisms is important. Obviously things need to be codified in law at least as they stand now, if we create different institutions where maybe laws are created in a different fashion, well, so be it. But for the time being, laws are codified in Congress, and I don't think it would be a bad idea for the left to run people in Congress. I don't know under what party or under independence or under what movement or series of movements, but I'm not opposed to that. I'm also not opposed to people on the left uh, being in positions of power within society, whether they be whether that be the media or creating alternative media institutions, whether that be um, the military or the police, you know, do I think that that should be the main focus? Of course not. I think it's a dead end. It's kind of like the people who want to reform the Democratic Party. To me, that seems ultimately that seems like a dead end to me. Is that something that maybe in the short term is worthwhile? I possibly, you know. If, if, if people think they can make gains and, and they are successful in the short term, well, then God bless them. More power to them. Go, you know, do your thing. Keep doing it. That's great. But ultimately, we're going to have to come up with something different. And really, we're not just talking about different parties. We need people to be coming up with completely different institutions. We need people to be thinking about alternatives to representative democracy or so-called representative democracy. We'll call it parliamentarism. And we also need people to come up with alternatives to the dominant economic systems of the day, primarily, of course, capitalism, neoliberal capitalism. I like to just say capitalism because people get it confused. Again, people say, well, it's like, you know, no, capitalism isn't the problem. It's neoliberalism. It's this really corrupt form of – no, capitalism is the problem. Let's be honest. Let's say it. Say it out loud. And I think more and more people are going to identify with it. So just like four or five years ago when we were trying to tell people, hey, let's – Let's um, promote a socialist message. Let's push things as far as we can push them. And people four or five years ago were saying, oh, my God, you guys are nuts. This country will never identify with any socialism. This country is so conservative. And in some ways, you know, and maybe in different ways, those people are right to some extent. But ultimately, look what happened. And it's the same now. Nobody could see the could have seen the rise of Bernie Sanders and the success of his campaign even though he didn't win, largely due to the many social movements that laid the groundwork, such as Occupy Wall Street, 
people couldn't see that coming. And it was the same on the other end when we were sort of warning people and saying, you know, hey, if things don't change in white America, if we don't organize working class and poor white people, they will get mobilized at some point. And the force that they will represent will be highly reactionary and extremely violent. And, well, here you have it in the form of Donald Trump's campaign. It's here. So, you know, the other thing I've been trying to remind people is not, oh, my God, we were so right, the left was so right and all this. No, it's to say to people, number one, give each other some credit because people are probably thinking more critically and bigger than what a lot of people give people credit for. That's number one. And number two... Let's challenge people now so when things happen in the future, you know, when there is, uh, let's say, a more drastic police state takeover because of a deteriorating economy or because a natural environment that's collapsing, people will have had already been exposed to messages that were radical critiques about the police and about the military. We need to have those conversations now. They're already 15 years too late when it comes to the military and what has been, you know, transpired since 9-11. And of course, these problems go back centuries as well. But we have to have those conversations now. We have to seriously challenge each other to not only make significant and substantial critiques and to educate people about the military, and the police. But to also think of alternatives and to develop those alternatives and to put those alternatives into action because the other thing I hear from people all the time is, you know, where's an alternative to this? How can we see? And I think that's important. I think it's going to be important for people to point, even if it's a small community, even if it's, you know, it's sort of, I think, in a very smart way, what Sanders' campaign was doing, excuse me, with regard to the Nordic countries. You know, of course there's major differences between the Nordic countries and the United States. Of course, that goes without saying. But what he was simply doing was giving people an example. So, hey, here's an example. People do things a little differently here, and it actually works for the better. I think the same is going to be true with regard to the police. Now, the military is a much different story because that is quite literally a national and international issue. We are going to need coordination on all levels to dismantle the U.S. empire. This will mean coordination from elements within the military, coordination from elements within the government, coordination among activists and protesters and organizers across national borders, and indeed throughout every region and continent in the world in order for us to properly dismantle the U.S. empire. It's probably, in my opinion, outside of dismantling and replacing global capitalism, the biggest challenge on the face of the planet right now would be for people to find a serious way to, uh, in a successful way, to dismantle the U.S. empire. Now, when it comes to police forces, I think you can do I think you could actually see much more success in a shorter amount of time. So, for example, if you were to have a municipality or a city or a town or a county or even a state, let's say, or maybe even a group of states, a region, decide to police in a much different manner, maybe even then come up with a different name than police, in a much different fashion, 
I think you could see a lot of movement in a short amount of time from other communities who would look at that situation and say, you know what, this is better than what we were doing before. They've had a little bit of success or say they've had significant success. We want to duplicate this success in our communities. I think something like that could be very useful. What that looks like, that's up to each individual community. That's up to movements. It's up to people and organizations to decide. It's not for me or anyone else to tell people. I mean, we could have ideas about what that would look like. I mean, I think that there would, I think having some kind of a rotating police force makes sense to me where you would have people in positions that would then rotate out of those positions so they're not constantly in a position of power. You know, so for instance, people get the proper training and then let's say they, you know, they, they're working in certain neighborhoods for a certain amount of time. Then they have to change and say they take another job because another problem, of course, is this division of labor. I know I'm starting to sound like a traditional Marxist today, but, you know, it is another issue that has not been really dealt with or solved in any significant way. And that is we shouldn't expect working class and poor people to work one job for the rest of their lives. And that they should just perform that one task over and over and over again, year upon year, year year after year after year, until they die. I mean, I think that's silly. And I think it's a waste of talent and a waste of resources. So that being said, those are some ideas. I see many similarities, and they're two of the most trusted institutions in society. You want to see people lose their minds? I've, I've talked to average white Americans about every issue you could possibly imagine. And the two issues they get more fired up about than any other issues are the police and the military. And if you throw race on top of all of that, race absolutely drive them will absolutely drive them nuts. A serious conversation about race, as you can see with Donald Trump's campaign, and a serious critique and conversation about the police, what they do, what they represent, whose interests they actually have at heart, what they actually do how they function in society, and the same with the military. What the U.S. military is, what it isn't, what it does overseas, what it represents, those two issues, including, you know, sort of race overlapping both of those. And this, you know, drives home discussions about Islam, discussions about black people and race in the United States, discussions about immigration and Latinos in the United States. It ties all of that together. And those are the two fundamental institutions that at the end of the day, within the context of economic collapse, within the context of environmental collapse, within the context of racial tensions, will be the two institutions that institute and implement the most violence in the society, that perpetuate the most violence because both police forces and the military are inherently violent and oppressive institutions. In the short term, I hope people can reform. I hope we can reform them in a way that would help average people. But in the long term, we need to abolish these institutions, dismantle these institutions, and come up with alternative institutions. That's my perspective. Until that happens, we'll be dealing with this stuff until the day we die. So those are the choices we have, folks. In my opinion, it's long past time to get rid of institutions that existed at a time when electricity didn't. So... There you have it, Meditations and Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. You're listening to the Progressive Radio Network. Every Monday at 1 p.m., you could find us here. See you next week. We don't know.